0: good wednesday night well we're in hebrews this week we're going to target verses 12 through 17 so much stuff in here uh, that's powerful for us to consider so let's thank god for the book of hebrews showing the supremacy of christ the priesthood of christ and how it is all that we need all sufficient the new covenant eclipsing the old covenant we looked at the hall of fame of faith and the great cloud of witnesses that have given us examples and so we continue here in chapter 12. Father, thank you for Hebrews. Thank you for what it means to us today. Thank you for these principles that come alive and challenge us. Father, I pray tonight that by the Holy Spirit each of us would take something home from you that's just for us. Cuz that's the type of father you are. You have something for everyone tonight that came with an expectant heart. So, Father, Meet those expectations tonight. Challenge us, stretch us, encourage us, refresh us tonight. We're worn out and weary. Send us home energized by the presence of God and the power of the word. We ask all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. So last week we did verses 1 through 11. I'm going to start in verse 12 here. Isn't, it, isn't the pollen out there amazing? Wow. I mean, I, I was scooping it out of the pool today. It, it, I needed a snow shovel. But uh, May, is, uh, May is an interesting month for your voice, so hopefully uh, God will sustain it tonight. Verse 12 of chapter 12, book of Hebrews. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright, for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. I'm going to stop right there for tonight. I'm going to read you to the same passage in the New King James. Some of the some of the words here I like better. They I think they hit harder. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, get that imagery, and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God; lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble and by this many become defiled. Verse 16. Let there be let there be any Least there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So just a few verses, but very powerful. Verse 11 of chapter 12 implored us to learn uh, from the examples of faith, the godly cloud of witnesses of the Old Testament saints. I hope you got that imagery In your mind as we pour through the scriptures and as we learn from scripture those examples that were there before us are there so we don't have to learn everything the hard way someone say amen the hard way is a is a bad way to learn you don't have to do everything wrong once so you could say yeah the bible was right i I shouldn't have done that amen so we can learn from the good examples of the old testament and from the poor examples ungodly kings ungodly prophets ungodly people that, uh, you know, like Esau we're going to talk about tonight. What an amazing thing to be mentioned in Scripture as an example of someone who's, you know, really blown it. Not what Esau was looking for, but, you know, a, a warning to all of us. We pick up in verse 12 here where we're told to do our part in maintaining our own individual spiritual vitality. You and I have a duty to preserve our own spirituality, to preserve our faith, to to protect our hearts. Anybody? Anybody maybe in your youth was reckless with your heart, and you got wounded emotionally, and you still carry baggage from it today? Don't raise your hand, but, you know, I mean, all of us have done things, and we we open ourselves up, and we get clobbered, and all of a sudden, our heart is wounded, amen? You say, well, why did that happen? Part of why it happens is because we don't have the wisdom to protect ourselves, and to maintain our own spiritual vitality, that's what these verses are going to zero in on. Verse twelve through thirteen contain some interesting imagery about uh, the, the the spiritual man's condition. Now, I want you to understand: we have a temporary outward man. This is this what you're looking at tonight is temporary. Someone say, "Amen." Amen. May, the older you get, you look in the mirror, you want, I want a new model. Amen. I want want a new body. I'm looking forward to that glorified body when I'm with Jesus. Amen. And this is the temporal man, the outward man. But we also have an eternal inward man. There's a part of us, the spirit and the soul, that's going to live forever somewhere in eternity, either with Jesus because we have made him Lord and Savior or outside the presence of God in hell because we've rejected the free gift of salvation. So we've got this inward and outward man. One's temporary. One's eternal. One's eternal. The inner, if the inner man or the outer man gets out of shape, it's going to cause problems for us. Amen. Oh, I'm just really spiritual, but I don't take care of my body. Listen, we need to discipline these bodies so they are sufficient to do the work and the will of God. Amen. There's many people that are sitting on the sidelines, not executing their calling because they let their outer man fall apart. Sometimes, you know, we get into these situations where we get so spiritual that we forget to, you know, maintain this, this body and it costs us something. If the, if the spirit part of us is out of shape and, you know, we look really good and we're fit and we're, you know, we work out and all that, the outward man's good, well, that's only temporary, amen? The Bible says what? Physical exercise profits little, right? This is the scripture that people who don't want to work out like to quote, Oh, there's no profit to it. Well, there is. It profits little. At least it's profitable, amen? But when we build our spirit, man, that's very profitable. Why? Because that's going to last for eternity. So if we let the inward or the outward man get out of shape, it's going to make trouble for us. Now, a lot of times we don't notice we're out of shape. We don't notice that we've lost strength or stamina until we put a demand on our body. And we don't notice it spiritually either till we put a spiritual demand on ourselves. Come on. You know, the older we get, every year I cut wood, I cut logs, we heat our house with wood. You know, every year I'm cutting big oak trees, I got 150 pound chunks of oak. Every year they come up just a little bit slower. Gotta cut every log, lift every log, cart it out, split it, stack it. I mean, after a while you're like, you know, what's going on here? You know, and then you realize something became weaker, something got out of shape, and you need to tune it back up, amen? If you don't tune it back up, something's going to break. And you ever see people that walk around like this? Come on. That's because, you know, we let things go, and we don't tune them up. But we have to maintain the outward man. We have to maintain the spiritual man. If something's weak in us, we have to strengthen it. That goes you know, for the outward body and the spiritual man. Now, once we know it's out of shape, we've got to attend to it. Come on now. Now, I'm not getting many amens here, and I know this is like one of those areas because we're all busy and we're like, I don't need another thing to do, Pastor. But when we realize we have spiritual deficiencies, we've got to attend to them quickly. Because if we don't, they are going to create problems for us. Verse 12 tells us to target Two things for strengthening. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. I want you to get this imagery. Just hanging there, and the feeble knees. Hands that hang down and feeble knees. Come on, you ever walk down the stairs and you kind of your knee kind of just says, oh, a little too much pizza, right? The feeble knees, I want you to get this imagery, it's powerful, and the hands that hang down. We're told to strengthen those two things. Now let's talk about the hands which hang down. Hands that hang down are not ready to do meaningful work. It's meaning that what? You know, your, your hands are just hanging there, they're not strong, they're not sure, they're, they're not ready to do work, they're just kind of hanging there. And hands that hang down are almost always the result of weak arms. The scripture talks about the arm of the Lord and the strength of the arm of the Lord and the arm of the flesh. It uses the arm as a symbol of strength. When we let our arms get weak, our hands hang down, and then we're not ready to do anything meaningful in the spiritual realm. Come on, get this tonight. So it's hands that hang down, and they're just hanging there, and they're the result of weak arms. Now, our hands should not become idle, When we have nothing in our hands to do spiritually, when we have nothing in our hands to do in the natural, you know, idle hands become a problem for us. We get into trouble when we've got nothing in our hands. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. We got a whole lot of people who should be a lot skinnier than they are. And we got some people who must work three or four jobs by the amount that they eat. Come on, Wednesday night, that's funny. But these hands that hang down that are idle, that are not filled with kingdom things, that are not filled with productive things, that that, that don't work sufficiently, they're a problem and they're a sign of an inward problem. And the Bible's telling us to strengthen them. Our hands should not be idle, but whatever God puts into our hands, we should do it with excellence and with diligence, amen? Amen. This is something we've forgotten in our society. we got so many people in the workforce that just want to do the bare minimum. They want a million-dollar paycheck for a dime's worth of effort. Come on, and that's really messed us up. We're not very competitive on the world scene anymore. Because, you know, we've become lazy, and we've become entitled, and we, we don't want to do the work with our hands. And spiritually, unfortunately, it's the same thing. But whatever God puts into our hands... We should do it with excellence. We should do it with diligence. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And that's what I want you to get. Christians should be the hardest workers, the most diligent workers, the most trustworthy people at, at the job. You and I should be it. We should arrive early, we should leave late, we should do more than we're required to do. Now I know this is hard. It's hard. We're, we're Americanized, amen? When Pastor Mike and I were in Bible school, we, we got a job outside of school working at a pizza place, if you could imagine that, you know, two Irish boys working in a pizza place. But the owner liked us so much and trusted us so much that he gave us the keys and let us run the place, and he would go home. You say, and he would you know, you say, say why did he do that? Because he knew we were Bible school students, we were trustworthy, there was nothing missing from the register, we took care of everything. You know, we were good workers. I say were, like it was in the past, you know, but hopefully we're still doing a good job. I'll leave that up to you to decide. But we should be those who work hard with our hands and do excellence, amen? We, we, we're not working for a boss. We're not working for a paycheck. We're, we're working for the Lord. We do everything unto the Lord, Amen so remember this, when you, when you show up at work tomorrow, you're not working for what, such and such a company. You're not, even if you work for yourself, you're not working for yourself. You're working for the king, amen? And everything you do reflects on him. Do you do half a job? Do you short the customer? Do you do, you do 75% of what's in the contract? Or do you do excellence? Hands that hang down. We need to address them. We need to strengthen them our arms need to be strengthened so our hands can do kingdom things. We never we can never forget that our success comes from the Lord. It's not by our grit, it's not by our hard work, but God asks us to to work hard and to go above and beyond and to use our hands for kingdom things. Psalm 44:33 says, "For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them." See, it's that arm imagery there the arm of the Lord, the arm of the flesh, the arm of man. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. Just the psalmist giving God the proper accolades for bringing success and favor to his people. It wasn't the grit or the hard work of the people in the final analysis. It was the goodness and the faithfulness of God, amen? So God asks us to do our best and to work hard and to have integrity, but in the final analysis, it's not even that that becomes our blessing, it's the goodness of God. So if your hands are weak and your arms are weak and they're hanging down and you're, you're weary in well-doing, get before the Lord and allow him to strengthen you, amen? So important. Our hands and arms need to be ready to do the will of the king and do the work of the kingdom. There are so many, much work to do. The harvest is plentiful Wednesday night, but the laborers are few. As a pastor in ministry, it's going on 28 years, I think. You know, I see less and less people going into the ministry. I see less and less people with a heart to serve. I see less and less people with a commitment to, to the local church, to the things of the kingdom, to evangelism, to outreach. The Bible school students that are coming into Elam, where I attended now, the teachers are saying the caliber of the students, it's not the same. There's no enthusiasm, there's no integrity. There. You know, they're worried about things that they shouldn't be worried about. And I hear, you know, my professors and my teachers, you know, kind of lament where we're at. I say, what's that all about? Hands and arms that need to be strengthened. How about feeble knees? For many, the knees, the weak. The weak link in the lower body. You, can, you can't have strong legs with weak knees. Someone say amen. You know, what usually gets us as we age is what? It's joints. Every, if you watch TV for a few minutes, there, every other commercial is about a joint supplement or a joint stimulant or chondroitin or some. Take this, rub this on, put this. Now, I mean, they got all kinds of snake oil out there. And it's why? Because people's joints are hurting. Here we're talking about in Scripture, weak joints, feeble knees, you know, you can't have strong legs with, with weak knees, but if you don't have strong legs, you're in trouble, amen? When you see someone get so old that they can't walk anymore and they lose their mobility, that's really a sad thing. And spiritually, if we've come to the place where we lose our spiritual mobility because we don't have strong legs to do the work of the kingdom, to, to shoulder the burdens that God has asked us to, now we're out of the race, and we're kind of on the sideline, and it shouldn't be. We shouldn't have hands that hang down, and we shouldn't have feeble knees. We need strong legs in life to do the things of the kingdom and to be mobile and productive. Isaiah 40:31 says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Amen. Our bodies might get older, but our spirits should be getting stronger and stronger. Someone say amen. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. There's renewal. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And, and that's our hope today is that as we wait on the Lord, we run to the Lord. We bring our weaknesses to the Lord, whether it's arms that are weak and hands that are idle or legs that are tired. We bring those spiritual weaknesses to the Lord, and we pray for him to strengthen those things. Someone say amen. Verse 13 here, it serves as a warning to us. It says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So, you know, there's this sense where you have parts that are diminished, they need to be strengthened. If a part is diminished while God's strengthening it, we need to allow that process to happen. But don't let it become dislocated. Listen to that. What is lame, don't let it become dislocated, but healed. Now, here's what I want you to look at here tonight. It says, make straight paths for your feet. What does that mean? It means we shouldn't make things more difficult on ourselves than they need to be. Get that scripture. God's not saying, I'll make straight paths, or have your pastor make straight paths, or maybe your mom and dad can make straight paths. He says, you make straight paths for your feet. What does that mean? Don't make things more difficult than they have to be. You know, this speaks to our human nature, why? Because a lot of times we do that. Maybe look back at your childhood or your youth when you were a teenager and you think, man, all the things that I made more difficult than they needed to be. Relationships that I complicated because I had an attitude and I thought I knew everything. Finances that I complicated because I wouldn't discipline myself. and No matter how much I made, I spent more and I was looking, are are you feeling me tonight? We have a tendency, our flesh has a tendency to make things more difficult for ourselves than they need to be, and the word is telling us, make straight paths for your feet. a straight and level path makes the journey quicker and more enjoyable i don 't know about you, but i 've had enough hills in my lifetime i'm not looking to i'm not looking to climb mountains anymore anybody you, you Some crazy people go hike. I'm going to go hike this mountain. Okay, the hikers. All right, God bless you over there. That's fine. You know, Robert's got those long, strong legs. God bless him over there. But in the natural, that's fine. It's good for health. It's good. In the spiritual realm, if we're making things more difficult for ourselves than we need to be, it's not a good thing. We need those level paths. We need those straight paths. We need the blessing of God, the favor of God, the protection of God. And, you know, we... It says here to make those straight paths for ourselves. And I want to say something about that. We don't always get to choose the terrain we walk on spiritually. And this is an instance where you do get to choose. And the choice should be to make the paths level and straight and not to make it more difficult than it needs to be. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But there's times where you don't get to choose the path you walk on. You don't get to choose. Sometimes it says we're going up the mountain. God says we're going. Now, I don't want to go up the mountain. I'm, I, I like the valley where you're going up the mountain. There's no blessing left for you here in the valley. If you want to sit there, you can sit there without the blessing. And then we'll sit there a little while and we'll go, I guess I'm going up the mountain. God leads us up the mountain. Some people, you know, there's people, missionaries in countries where they never wanted to go to serve there. There's there's people who are in hostile countries that they're in danger of imprisonment or, or being killed. You think they picked that at a, like some kind of ministry job fair? I'd like to go here. No, even, I don't know if I should say this. I didn't even want to come here. I went, I, I grew up here. I got saved here. I went to Bible school, met my wife. She's from Canada. We never wanted to come back here. When we got out of school, those people who were above me in the Lord told me to work for a few years and then, you know, establish your marriage. So I took two years off. I worked as a night crew, fork truck driver at Pepsi, drove tractor trailers a little bit, you know, just establishing our marriage. And then, the offer started to come in of where we wanted to, you know, where we were going to go to minister. And, and we got this call, and we, we both were like, uh-uh, I ain't going to New York, even back then. Now that it's New Yorkistan, behind enemy lines here. But we both prayed separately, and God sent us here. You and I don't get to choose the place in the field, the terrain, whether it's mountainous, whether it's valley. God chooses for us. He knows better. But when we have a choice, make sure you don't make things more difficult on yourself than they need to be. Someone say amen. Now, here's something I want to say about making things more difficult than they need to be. There's basically two types of suffering. There's foolish suffering and there's redemptive suffering. Foolish suffering is when we make things more difficult than they have to be and we suffer because of it. Foolish suffering happens when you know, we do what we know we shouldn't do, and then we reap the harvest of it. That's foolish suffering. How many people have, have endured some foolish suffering in their life? Amen. Now, redemptive suffering is different. That's when God asks us to do something, and there's suffering required, but in the end, it redeems us. It makes us more like Jesus. It produces fruit in and through us. Amen. You and I want to embrace redemptive suffering and avoid Foolish suffering at all costs. So there it is. Make straight paths for your feet. And then it says, so that what is lame may not be dislocated. Here's a question for everybody tonight. Have you ever been in situations in life where things were bad? When life was hard? Maybe bad choices caught up with you, laziness, a lack of discipline. And some, at some point it catches up with us. Have you ever been there? Well, I want to really encourage you tonight. No matter how bad it is, it can always get worse. You know, they say that I complained that I had no shoes until I met the man who had no feet. Things can always get worse. Oh, this is terrible. This is bad. You know, we we, had to stay inside and wear masks, and this is terrible. uh, You know, I can't believe it. It can always get worse. And you say, "Well, pastor, why are you encouraging us so much tonight? And the reason i'm I'm saying this is because it's what the text is saying so that what is lame does not become dislocated it's you know it, it's not working, it's feeble now it's out of joint now it's now there's pain now it's in a worse situation. God is saying, address the weakness, address what's out of order, address what you know, we've let slip or slide because it can get worse if we don't correct it. There's a lot of things in life that do not correct themselves. People say, time heals all things. That's the, the stupidest thing I have ever heard. In all these years of ministry, all I've seen that time does is make things worse. If you're bitter and you don't address it, over time, you're more bitter. If you're lazy and unproductive and have an attitude over time and you don't address it, it just gets worse. Everything gets worse over time unless you let God fix it. So what's lame needs to be addressed so it doesn't become dislocated. The text gives us a little hope here. It's a warning, you know, if, if you're out of balance, if you're out of sorts, if you're not right, get, get right, because what la- what's lame can be dislocated. But it says, but rather be healed. See, there's the hope of healing. If we run from God, things continue to you know, implode in our lives. But if we run to God, even if we're broken and we're lame and our hands are weak and our knees are feeble, he, he can heal us. That scripture that says, they that wait on the Lord, we just looked at. What happens when we run to him and we wait on him? He refreshes us, he strengthens us, he heals what's broken. Now the thing is not dislocated, it's not lame, it's healthy and it works again and we can use it for his glory. So there's hope in the text here and we should realize that healing is possible but we have to choose it. We have to choose to humble ourselves and and run to God and let him strengthen us what we've allowed to become weak. Now, verses 14 through 17, shift gears a little bit here, but they continue to list areas we need to pay attention to to ensure our own spiritual health and vitality. Let's look at verse 14. It says, pursue peace with all people. Up oh, now, we're, now we're dealing with people. You thought it was difficult dealing with broken parts in your spiritual man. Now you're gonna have to deal with other people and their broken parts. Pursue peace with all people and holiness with which no one will see the Lord. Let's take a look at verse 14. The first thing we're told to to pursue is peace. Pursue peace and with all people. Now, peace isn't something we create for ourselves out of thin air. Peace isn't like a mind trick that we play with ourselves. Peace doesn't come from meditating or or staring at a head of lettuce or whatever you want to do, a yoga position. Hello? Hello? That's what the world thinks. Well, I'm just going to you know, go like this for an hour, and that's not where peace comes from. Peace is not something we create or pull out of thin air. Peace is actually a gift that Jesus has given to all of His children. John fourteen twenty six through twenty seven. Write it down. John fourteen twenty six through twenty seven. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace is a gift given to us from Jesus as his children as an Inheritance. You don't manufacture it. It's not a mind trick. It's not nirvana. It's not a state of being. It's not chanting, meditating. It's none of that. In fact, you can do that all day long, and then one thing will set you off, and your peace is gone. Come on, I just need a vacation. Every vacation I go on, when I come back, I need a vacation from that vacation. More worn out. So peace is a, it's a gift, and so we have, to, we have to tap into what Jesus has given us, I love what he says here. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, do I? It's not like the world's peace. It's not based on what's happening or if things are going good for you or if everybody likes you. Hello? Come on, I'm preaching tonight. Well, you know, the, I lost my job and my finances are strained and, you know, nobody likes me and the, the homeowners associated, uh, associated voted to throw us out of the neighborhood. You can have jail. Lo- I mean, you can have peace in jail, locked up in a cell. If you're there for the kingdom of God, come on. Some of you are looking at me like you ain't buying what I'm selling tonight. No, no. When everything's going good and I'm getting all my wish list and I no, if you're waiting for that, you're never going to have peace. Peace comes from being right with God and tapping into, uh, you know, what Jesus has given us. The scripture that keeps resonating in my heart these last couple of days is, "Delight yourself in the Lord." and he will give you the desires of your heart. The more I meditate on that, the more I realize that once you delight yourself in the Lord, it doesn't matter about the desires of your heart anymore. Oh, God, I want this, and I want that, and I want this. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Jesus is the thing that I'm delighted about, and he wants to give me as much of him as I'm willing to get at his feet, amen? So peace is something that we get as an inheritance. We need to tap into it. We need to allow Jesus to inject it into us regardless of what's going on in our lives and just to enjoy it as an inheritance. So that's the peace that Jesus gives us. But verse 14 talks about pursuing peace with all people. See, there's, a, there's another component there. So I wanted to show you where your peace comes from as a Christian, as an individual. But now Jesus says pursue peace on a societal level with other people. You know, it's no good for the church. It's no good for the testimony of Christians. It's no good for us if we say that, you know, we love God and we have all this peace and yet we're at odds with everybody around us. You know, we're the neighborhood grouch and we're, we're the sourpuss Christian that's judgmental. Come on now. We've got to have peace with others. You say, well, how can we have peace with them? They're, they're crazy. They're ungodly. They're nuts. I don't, want, I don't even want to be around them. But God's called us to love them and to reach them and to preach the gospel to them. Man, this section is really excited tonight, right right here. We've got to have peace, not just with God, not just as an inheritance, but we've got to have it with other people. Now, this personal peace that we gain from Jesus as an inheritance, that's something we should always have. But peace, like verse 14 is talking about, is only possible if we choose to be loving instead of judgmental. See, if we're judgmental, we're not going to have peace with other people. Let me, let me tell you something that maybe will flip your lid a little bit. I, I love people who don't go to Full Gospel Center. I have friends that are Muslims. I love them. I pray for their salvation. I want them to be saved. I know people who are homosexual. I love them. I pray for them. I preach the gospel to them. Oh, I don't know if I like this pastor anymore. He, he hangs out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Yeah, just like Jesus. You know, we, we've got to love people. People well, we don't agree. We don't agree doctrinally. I know. And every minute I'm with them, I'm praying for them under my breath. I'm touching them like, hey, how you doing? I'm laying hands on you. I'm praying for you. I'm casting the devil out of you. Amen. How are we going to let our light shine if we don't like anybody? Now, I'm not saying we justify sin or we condone it or we don't address it or we say it's okay, it's a, you know, we become apostate to the truth. No, I'm saying we let our light shine, amen? But we've got to choose to be loving instead of judgmental. Judgment is all that's hanging over the lost. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, amen? They understand judgment. They understand wrath. They understand all that. What they don't know is the love of God, And they've got to experience it through us. So peace with others is only possible if we'll be loving instead of judgmental. Peace, like is described in verse 14, is only possible if the other people are open to it. Did you catch what I said? You can't love somebody who doesn't let you love them. You can't love somebody who, you know, hates you. Right now, Israel's having a hard time with its neighbors. Why? Because the countries around Israel have agreed that what we want to do is we want to destroy Israel and put it into the ocean and cut it off from the land so it doesn't exist. It's hard to have peace with people who want to kill you. It's hard to have peace with people who hate you. Hello? But if they don't hate you and they are open to it, then you and I should be loving to them. See, there's there's a couple caveats here. And the one is that, you know, we have to be loving and not judgmental. And the one is that other people have to be open to it. Listen to what Romans 12, 18 says. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Did you hear that? If it is possible, sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's impossible. For some reason, some people just aren't going to like you aren't going to let you get close to them, don't want you to love them, and just, you know, it, it's probably that, you know, the Jesus in you uh, uh, and, you know kind of riles up the demons in them. That happens sometimes. But as much as it's possible with you, you know, as much as it's possible, we should be loving. We shouldn't be judgmental. We should serve other people. We should, you know, how do I say it? We just need to let our light shine, Amen. Don't cloister yourself. Don't run away. Don't hide in your family compound. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Amen. Rub your shoulders with people who are lost and love them, and you're going to see some of them born into the kingdom. So peace is what we should focus on, according to verse 14. And then it says holiness, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's an interesting comment here made in hebrews holiness needs to be the pursuit of every believer for two reasons number one without holiness we won't see god how many people want to see god want to see jesus when you die amen this scripture should be a little sobering here we need to be holy amen this fast and loose cheap grace you know do whatever you want and all dogs go to heaven theology is really dangerous amen because the bible says that we have to be holy and it talks about you know this holiness that is the only way we're ever going to see God. Uh, without holiness, we won't see God, so that's why we should pr- pursue holiness. And number two, because we represent God as Christians, you know and God is holy, and he said we should be holy. Listen to First 1 Peter 1:15 1, and 16. But as he has called you, be, but as he who called you who is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter is quoting Leviticus there, where uh, several times in the book of Leviticus, God says to his people, Be holy, for I am holy. In Leviticus 11:19. 19... Uh, Chapter 20 and chapter 21, a couple times in each, he says it. Be holy, for I am holy. Peter is quoting that here. How much more for us who are in Christ Jesus, who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, should we be holy? Now, before we get too legalistic with the holiness here, because anytime you know, a preacher gets up here and, or somebody tells you, you should be holy, right away, your flesh wants to become legalistic with it. Oh, I got to start keeping the rules better. I got to start being a little tighter. I got to start speaking in King James when I talk to my friends. No, it's not a legalistic holiness. I want to say a couple things about personal holiness. Number one, if we're saved, all of us have what theologians call positional holiness. What does that mean? If we're in Christ and we're under the blood of Jesus, positionally, God looks at us, and we are holy. That's the only way we can have fellowship with God. Why? Because God cannot fellowship with with sinful humanity, with sinful flesh. You see it in the Old Testament. Only Moses could come up, all the people had to stay back. Don't get too close. Don't touch the ark. You'll fall over dead. He's holy. We're not. We have positional holiness in Jesus Christ. If you are born again, if if you are in Christ, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see you or your sin or all your mistakes and failures. No, he sees Jesus and the blood covers you and positionally you're holy. But on the other side of the coin to positional holiness, there's personal holiness. And this is where, now it gets quiet. Oh, I like that positional, that was good. I just got it, like a, like a coat I put on. But now, personal holiness requires us to actually, you know, uh, do something about it. Amen. To shun sin, to, to, to yearn for righteousness, to love God and to hate sin, to not touch the unclean thing. Amen. To come out from the world and not be, be in it but not of it. Come on tonight. Personal holiness requires us to try. Amen. We're never going to be perfectly holy, but you know what? We should be holier than we were when we started. Oh man, I got saved and I was into X, Y, and Z, but God delivered me and I don't do that anymore. And you know, I've come out and I've changed. Man, if we could compare our old self to where we are even right today, I think a lot of us would be more encouraged than we are. But the truth is we, you know, he continues to sanctify us and he continues to perfect us and that personal holiness is something that we need to strive for. Not that it saves us, but it pleases the Father, Amen. And it makes us more. It makes us more like Jesus. So, uh, you, you know, there's positional holiness and personal holiness. You and I need to be holy. It's what the Lord tells us to do. And so that should be something on our hearts every day. Verse 15 uh, continues here. It says, "Look carefully, lest anyone fall short." of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Let's take a look at this verse here. Verse 15 demands we continually examine ourselves to see if we test positive for faith, amen? People are getting a lot of tests here to see if they test positive for this, that, and the other thing. I want to know if I test positive for faith, and, and what does the text say? Look carefully, lest anyone fall short. So we should examine ourselves, and we should be examining to a degree the people around us. If the people around us are in sin, then maybe we've surrounded ourselves with the wrong people. Now, and if it's an evangelistic thing like I talked about Loving people into the kingdom and doing it, you know. But if the people around us, are our inner circle, they're not holy and they're not pursuing God, then maybe we need to surround ourselves with some different people in our inner circle. Hello. So, verse 15 demands we continually examine ourselves. Introspection and self examination are good things. You know, the, the scripture tells us that we should, you know, search ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Paul says something to that degree. So, we need to look carefully, and if you know something's not right in us or around us, we need to address it. It says well at least any root of bitterness spring up. see something's produced when we're not right, something gets produced in us if we you know if we're not right with God and we're we're not in the faith and we're not walking in in grace and and just enjoying being god's child and then all of a sudden you know <laughs> there's gonna be what the scripture says, a root of bitterness springing up and it causes trouble and it defiles many. I want you to understand something. If we step out of God's grace, we fall right back into the legalism of the law. There's only two places we can be in this life. We're either under the grace of God, covered by the blood of Jesus, or we step outside of the grace, and then we are right back under the law that brings condemnation and the wrath of God to get us to repent, so we come back to grace. There's only two places we could be, all right? So if we're not, you know, we start off in grace, and then, you know, we go, we go astray, and we get back into legalism. Now it makes a problem. We can be sure that when we step back into legalism, it will produce something very specific in us, and that's bitterness. You say, why does legalism produce bitterness? Because legalism and following the law is bondage, and bondage, or slavery, always produces bitterness. Are you getting this? This is why the text is talking about a root of bitterness there. Why? Because if I'm not under grace, and I'm in the law. Now I'm a religious law keeper, and that's going to make me bitter because I can never measure up, and I won't repent and go back to grace. So now this root of bitterness is in me. And what happens? It infects everyone around me. Because when I'm legalistic, I project that on other people, and I, and I demand that they become religious law keepers and grace killers like me. So powerful here to unravel this and see least any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. What's the trouble that and it's going to defile many? Why? Because that's what legalism does. God help people who start off in grace and go back to legalism, try and project it on others. It's a root of bitterness that chokes the joy and the life out of Christians, and we need to be very careful that it's not in us or around us. Because when we see it, we have to be like the disciples and shake the dust off our shoes and get away from it. Amen? It's grace. By faith, it's not works. It's not law-keeping. Someone say amen. Verse 16 and 17 warn us to avoid people who claim to be saints but live like devils. Ever known some of them? Oh, I'm a Christian. And then you see the way they talk and the way they act and the way they conduct themselves you know, maybe with the opposite sex. Oh, I'm a Christian. (laughs) Verse 16, least there be any fornicator, sexual immorality, or profane person. We're going to talk about that like Esau. For one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance. Let's just look at this as we close up tonight. (laughs) Verse 16 is warning us to avoid people who say they're Christians, but they don't live a Christian life. Specifically, it points out fornicators. Fornicators are those who commit sexual sin. Sexual sin is very serious in the eyes of the Lord because it is a joint compound sin that affects not just us, but it affects God, our relationship with him. It affects the person we're conducting immorality with. Why? Because when you couple with another person, the two become one flesh. Now you've sinned against your own body, you've sinned against your brother or your sister, and you've sinned against God. It's a joint compound sin. It is emotional, an emotional, spiritual disaster yet our world traffics in it so comfortably that it seems normal. But it can't be normal in the church. Sexual immorality is a huge problem. It defiles us, spirit, soul, and body. Sexual sin puts a wall between us and God. Why? Because when we give ourselves over to the immorality of the flesh, the the sinfulness of it clashes with the holy God, and now we have no more fellowship with him we've broken our fellowship with him. I know it's quiet, but we, I, I got to say it just like this, because it's really serious, and it's really pervasive. If, if you're dabbling in immorality, if you're dabbling in whatever kind of sexual sin, if your children are doing it, warn them. Don't just turn a blind eye. Just don't say, oh, they'll get over it. It's just a phase. Or maybe someday they'll get married. Listen, Jesus is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle, amen pastor preach us the word fornicators sexual sin bad problem i want to say something about sexual sin physical adultery always leads to spiritual adultery Well, I love God, but you know I'm just struggling in this area. If you give yourself over to it, uh, if you give yourself over to sexual sin, you'll eventually walk away from God. Why? Because if you're willing to cross those lines in sexual purity, eventually you will cross the lines of spiritual purity. It's powerful tonight. Please hear what I'm saying. Physical adultery always leads to spiritual adultery. I've never seen a person who gives them over themselves over to sexual sin, stay in a healthy relationship with God. It's impossible. Eventually, we'll cross the lines of spiritual purity and become unfaithful to God. The whole book of Hosea is about Hosea the prophet marries a prostitute who's constantly unfaithful to him. And what it is is a picture of, you know, Christ and the church or, you know, the believer coming to God and what? Constantly going out and, and running to the world and the things of the world and committing adultery with the world. And it breaks the father heart of God because he loves us and desires us to be his own. We're his bride. So sexual sin is a serious issue. It's a serious problem in the church. We need to address it. And if it's there, we need to repent of it and change the way we conduct ourselves. One last thing is mentioned here. Profane person, look at that. That's interesting here. It says, least there be any fornicator, all right, we got that out of the way, or profane person like Esau. Remember I said, man, that's the last place you want your name referenced. I almost feel sorry for Esau, although he made his bed and he hardened his heart. But we're talking about a profane person, and Esau's name is mentioned. Now, the word profane in the Greek is babylos, and it means to be a heathen, a wicked person, or to cross the threshold. What I want you to get about Babylon is this. It means you cross the line. Maybe somebody has said that to you. Maybe you've said it to your kids. Have you heard it before? Don't cross the line. You just crossed the line. Or maybe you said something and someone said to you, you just crossed the line. That's what that word means. So profane means someone who just crosses the line. And that was Esau. Profane means someone who acts like a heathen, and they should know better. They should know about godliness, but they act like a heathen. It means someone who, you know, is familiar with godliness but acts wickedly. A profane person. Hebrews gives us the example of a profane person in Isaac's son, Jacob's brother, Esau. What made Esau profane? Well, remember the text here reminds us that he sold his birthright for a, for a meal, for a bowl of porridge or whatever it was you know he was hungry he was famished his brother jacob took advantage of him esau uh, was reckless with his faith and reckless with the things of god now i'm going to show you what made esau profane number one it was his willingness to always satisfy himself rather than restrain himself you see a lack of self-control will allow us to cross lines when we feel like it and that makes us profane Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, amen? Reckless people who cross any line they feel like it, whenever they feel like it, God says, that's profane. Esau didn't care about God, he didn't care about righteousness, and he didn't care about integrity as much as he cared about getting what he wanted in the moment. Again, I want you to see that. It's a spiritual recklessness and it's offensive to God, and God sees it as profane. It's heathenish behavior. It's wicked behavior. It's crossing the line. Wow. Esau's self centeredness and recklessness made him unusable to God. No one likes to think about that, but there are some people because of their behavior and their recklessness and their lack of self control that God can't use them. So God passes over Esau even though he was supposed to be the firstborn, and he, he uses Jacob, who had other issues, but at least Jacob reverenced the things of God. Verse 17 tells us that Esau had these deep character flaws, but when it came down to it at the end, he wanted the, the blessing, he wanted the birthright, but he'd sold it, and God had seen the recklessness of his heart and had rejected him, and he sought it with tears, the text says, but he found no place of repentance. This should be very, yeah, it should be very sobering to us. That, oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm so, oh God, I'm so, I should you know. Sometimes when we make a habit of always crossing the line, sometimes we've crossed the line for the last time. It's a fearful thing for sinners to fall in the hands of an angry God. Let's not play games with God. If our arms are weak and our hands are hanging down and our knees are feeble, let's run to him and get right. Let's examine ourselves to make sure we've stayed in grace and we haven't become legalistic. At least we poison those around us. Let's make sure that we reverence God and control ourselves spiritually. We don't give ourselves over to immorality and we don't become profane, amen? Because there's many in the church now that have slipped into these categories, and as with being out of shape, they're not even aware of it. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for these verses tonight. I thank you for these people who've come out to hear truth and to eat meat on Wednesday night. Bless them, Lord God. Father, I know some of what the text implies and says to us is kind of sobering. It's jarring. It's jarring for me, and it's jarring for us to hear. Father, I pray you give us ears to hear that if there's areas in our life that are out of balance, Father, give us what Esau didn't get, the gift of repentance. Don't allow our hearts to become hardened. But, Lord, let us find that place of repentance and find strength in you so that we can be healed and the things that are dislocated and disjointed in our life can be made functional again. I pray it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Give him praise tonight.